Welcome back, everyone. I'm Cassandra. And I'm Kareny. And this is Too Good to Be True. And we are here with our second installment of our one-year anniversary, you know, mobster thing we're doing. <laughs> I, listen, I am not as a... What's the word I'm trying to think of? <laughs> I don't know, normal. <laughs> yeah, I'm not as normal as Karami, but I'm also not as like structured as Karami. Okay. Oh, I didn't know where you were going. <laughs> I just be winging it through life. Okay. <laughs> so I am Frank Costello, and I'm just gonna like put this out there now at the beginning. Some of this is gonna be redundant repeat from what we already talked about i think they all will because yeah they're all part of the big five family men right they're all battling each other and working with each other and i i've already started doing the research for my next stuff and there's already you know overlap but i mean it's to be expected. It's to be expected. They're all working in the same world at the same time like they're all part of this big underworld mafia menace all of them at the same time you know working with and against each other like some yeah shit is bound to come up like i know frank costello already came up last week last week yeah uh, the shit he was doing with what's his face uh the guy i had last week gambino Gambino. i let down some things that i feel were really relevant and we may have actually talked about them last week um, that had to do with other people and not him because I was like, what's the point? Yeah, I like I kind of debated that with mine too, but all of mine did tie back to Gambino in some way. Like there, there were definitely right. things that were like, this guy's doing this thing and this guy's doing this other thing and the whole time Gambino's sitting his ass in jail, but at the end of the day, it all came full circle when he became involved. That's the only reason I brought in was that they all... It all kind of... Parts of it all kind of connect together, and we'll see that um, when we get there. Okay, so obviously there's going to be some overlap, but I just wanted to put that out there before I get into it. So, Frankie Boy <laughs> was born as Francesco Castiglia, January 26, 1891, in Laura Poli, Italy. And in 1895, he took a ship to the U.S. with his mother and brother when he was only four. His father was already established in East Harlem, New York. He had moved there several years earlier. The father ran a small neighborhood grocery store. His brother introduced him to gang life when he was still just a, you know, wee lad. Frank's brother or Frank's dad's brother? No. Frank's brother. Okay. At the age of 13, he became involved in the local gang, the 140s. Why am I having a hard fucking time saying this? The 140th Street Gang. You don't know, man. That was pretty. Why you think I'm that hard? Um, yeah, I don't know what the fuck that was. I'll follow that to that. He became the head of that gang, and started going by the name Frankie. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Frankie boy. 
At this point, he was only committing petty crimes and had been to jail several times between 1908 and 1917 for assault and robbery. In 1918, he married a Jewish woman named Lorena Geigerman, who was the sister of a close friend. That same year, he served 10 months in jail for carrying a concealed weapon. When he was released, he vowed to give up violence altogether and use his mind as his weapon. I have a feeling that didn't quite go to plan. No, it does. From this point on, he never carried a gun on him, which was, like, very much out of the ordinary for a mob boss. Okay, but he didn't just go to the straight and narrow, is what I He didn't really go to the straight and narrow, but he, he really didn't like to use violence. One of his lawyers once said he was not soft, but he was human. He was civilized, and that he rejected the bloody violence in which previous bosses enjoyed taking part. While working for the Morello gang, Frank met Charlie Lucky Luciano, the Sic- I don't know how you say it, the Sicilian leader of Manhattan's Lower East Side gang, which, you know, the gang was like divided into factions, which is why like it was the Lower East Side. There's like several different gang things in Manhattan or whatever. I wonder how many there are next. Like, not mob-related, just in general. Just in general, I don't know. The two became instant friends and also partners. Several of the older members of Lucky's mob family disapproved of this partnership. The old-school mafia also kind of, like, were known to not do dealings with anyone who was a non-Italian. And they even had reservations about working with non-Sicilians because they were just very, like, strict on that. Mm-hmm. So that is why. And they even called Costello the Dirty Calabrian, which is, like, the peninsula in Italy where his home was. Calabria or whatever was the peninsula where he grew up. So I guess they don't like people from that peninsula. I don't know. Weird. I mean, we all like people from Florida, so. I mean, <laughs> okay. Justification there. I mean, everybody in, everybody in the United States has, like, random states that they just don't like. Like, you know, I guess Albania and New Jersey, and then New Jersey and New York, and it's just, like, no one likes New Jersey, first of all. And then no one likes Florida, and then everybody hates, they have a state that they hate. So I guess it makes sense. I guess that's true. It's just a smaller scale, because Italy is, like, the size of robot. Yeah, I guess they specifically really like Sicilian, because I guess maybe in their minds that's, like, the true Italians. I I I think so. I, I remember reading something about that when I was doing my research for Gambino, but I didn't go into it, but I definitely remember that was a thing. That they right. Did not like to deal with people who were not Sicilians, which, I mean, this guy is already married a Jewish lady, so he's yeah. outside the box. And So, along with their fellow Italian-American associates, Vito Genovese, Tommy Three Finger Brown Lucis, as well as Jewish associates Meyer Lansky and Benjamin Bugsy Siegel, the gang... I know, they all have weird names. I was only have fun names I don't anymore. I was like, three finger brow. How's he get that name? I'm gonna be like, I'm gonna be like, carry me ten toes, right? 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> the gang became involved in robbery, theft, extortion, gambling, and narcotics. The alliance between Luciano, Costello, Lansky, and Siegel was proving to be extremely lucrative, and it got even better with the passage of Prohibition, which we kind of went over some of that last time. No drinking. Which is the banning of alcohol and beverages, and the regulating of the manufacturing, production, use, and sale of alcohol as well in 1920. So when the gang started getting into bootlegging, you know, or illegally making and selling alcoholic beverages such as moonshine. I don't know why, but when you said it that way, I immediately thought of It's Always Sunny. Because every one of their episodes is like, the gang does this. <laughs> the gang gets into bootlegging. They got into bootlegging. <laughs> the bootlegging business had a financial backer who was also a criminal, Arnold the Brain Rothstein. Seriously, I'm... <laughs> I want it. Seriously, could we get some Elizabeth just to actually them. write to us and give us... It just makes them sound cooler. <laughs> he was a racketeer, crime boss, and businessman who went on to become a kingpin of the Jewish mob in New York City. Their success led them into business dealings with the leading Jewish and Irish criminals at the time also. Their names are Dutch Schultz and Oni the Killer Madden, as well as William Big Bill Dwyer, I don't think I realized that there is a Jewish mom. Yeah, there's Jewish. There's I've, there's, I was like, as I'm doing this, I'm like, there's so many different facets. Of, I mean, like, everybody pretty much. Everybody was in on it. Man, I, obviously, I knew that there were Irish gangs because of proximity to Philly. And, but it's a Jewish mom. There was a lot going on. So Rothstein, or, you know, the brain... <laughs> became a sort of mentor to those four throughout their whole bootlegging times with Schultz, who I guess was known as the Bronx Beer Baron. Apparently that was what he was well known for. Okay. In 1922, Costello and Luciano, along with their closest Italian associates, joined the Sicilian crime family led by Joe the Boss Masseria. Is that how you say that? Did you talk about Yeah, I did talk about Masseria. I thought so. Okay, who we know was a top tier in the crime boss world since he was, you know, for some time the boss of what is now known as the Genovese crime family, one of New York City Mafia's five families. So that's like one of the big kahunas. Whatever you want to call it. By 1924, Costello had become very close with Dwyer and Fat Madden. Why did I want to say Fat? Madden, as he was involved in their rum-running operations, which is just basically another word for bootlegging. <laughs> rum-running, bootlegging. <laughs> Sounds like a good time. <laughs> so this specific operation that they had going was called the Combine, which it is said may have caused him to change his last name to the Irish Costello, because as you know, that wasn't his original family name. Yeah. So they're saying at this time, that's when he changed it when he was doing all this shit with the Irish. I didn't know Costello was Irish, right? I don't know. I didn't know that. I, I didn't know that either. another Italian name. I didn't know that either, but yeah, I kind of thought so too. But I guess they said it sound, it's more leaning towards Irish. So I guess since he was doing dealings with those people, he wanted to come off more 
you know, I don't know, less Italian, I guess. I mean, I don't know a lot of Sicilians that would be able to pull off looking Irish, but more power to you, friend. Go for it. On November 19th, 1926, Costello and Dwyer were indicted on bootlegging charges. They were being accused of bribing two U.S. Coast Guards, theoretically, so they would not bother them when they were unloading liquor from boats in New York Harbor. You gotta do what you gotta gotta do. do. Exactly. Apparently, the largest boat in the Combine Slate could carry 20,000 cases of liquor, which... That's a lot of liquor. That's a lot of liquor. A lot of liquor. <laughs> a lot of liquor. In January of 1927, the jury came back deadlocked on the charges against Costello, but Dwyer was convicted of bribing a Coast Guard official and sentenced to two years in jail. While Dwyer was in prison, Costello was taking care of the Combine's operations with Matney. This caused problems with a top lieutenant of Dwyer's, Charles Vanny Higgins, who felt he should have been helping Madden with this. Why? You know what, guys? Beef dogs. Yeah, like they're, they're, they're kind of all like big babies. They really are. That's the whole problem. They're like these man children who are like, Errol, he should be doing it with me, not him. And then like they get their feelings, get all in their feelings about it and get panties in a twist. And that's very true. So on last week's episode, Kermi kind of went over, like, the chain of command, sort of, of these families uh, or whatever, these mafias. And it's like, there's, like, the Don, the boss, then under that, there's, you know, the underboss, and then the captains or capos, and consigliaries. And the consigliere is on the same level as the boss. He's just kind of, like... A mediator. a mediator, advisor, right-hand man. Yeah, he's not calling the shots. He's just helping them. He's just not kill each other. Yeah. And, and not doing a great job. And then also, if you were of, like, the older times, there was, like, a boss of all bosses, okay? Mm-hmm. Like, above the Don or boss. Which is, like, kind of sort of like what that other guy, Massieri, or what, what else is his name? Masseria, that guy believes in that sort of whole right. Because I read that whole little war thingy, and I think what's his name, Maranzano, was the one that took over. He wanted to. The t- he wanted to take his spot. It turns into a whole big thing, and we're going to get into it, but we're not there yet. This led to what was called the Manhattan Beer Wars between Higgins and Costello, Madden and Schultz. Schultz was also having issues with other fellow gangsters, Jack Legs Diamond and Vincent Mad Dog Call. And. <laughs> I don't know where they seems. Who basically joined Higgins in his rivalry, and they eventually brought down the alliance of Costello, Madden, and Schultz. Because he was pissed, because he was like, why did he get to take that over? It should have been me. Yeah. Whatever. All right, you big baby. In the late 1920s, Johnny Torrio, an Italian monster in Chicago, helped organize a cartel of East Coast bootleggers called the Big Seven, or as they were known in the media, Murder rate. And whenever I hear that, all I think of is Ja Rule. <laughs> I'm like, what's going on the fucking head? <laughs> I don't know. Every time I read that, I was like, that's all I could think of. Okay. <laughs> because that's what he called his uh, record company or whatever. Murder rate. <laughs> I was like, that's all I could think of every time I read it. <laughs> anyway, that's what the media started labeling the Big Seven. Murder Inc. This included Costello, Luciano, and Lansky, among others. 
Torrio also was in support of a national body that would prevent turf wars among gangs in Chicago and New York. As we already know from our previous episode, the Atlantic City Conference was held. We kind of went on for this before, and then, but we're going to go over it again. And hosted by Torrio, Lansky, Luciano, and Costello, where the National Crime Syndicate was created. The Big Seven was an organized crime group that was active from 1929 to 1941. They acted as the enforcement arm of the National Crime Syndicate. So Murder, Inc., or the Big Seven, was a multi-ethnic, closely connected confederation of several crime organizations. Hundreds of murders were committed by them on behalf of the National Crime Syndicate Syndicate during the 1930s and 40s because they were like, their enforcers, basically. That's what their job was. That's what they did. <laughs> Salvatore Maranzano and Joe Masseria, we were just talking about, were very old-world mafia and did not believe the rules applied to them. They wanted total control or nothing. Because this belief system was not in line with the vision that Costello has for the mafia's advancement, they had not been invited to the Big Seven Group meeting in Atlantic City. Oh, well, that's going to go well. That's going to go real well. You can't not invite these big babies. They were, and they were like, you know, the really big people. While all these younger up-and-coming mobsters were, were in discussions over order and keeping balance between the families, these two were ready to throw down. <laughs> that's what I wrote in my notes. Over control of all the families because they wanted to be the boss of all bosses. <laughs> Masseria thought he was entitled to this dictatorship over the families and started feeing the Maranzano family members 10000 in exchange for protection. Okay. I don't know what that was all about. What? Okay. I think he just was like, I think a lot of these people are like this power hungry. Like they just want to be the big, bigger person of all the other people and have all these like right and they underlying have, they have this really big hang up loyalty and respect and that's their whole that's what it all boils down to honestly like a lot of it is they feel disrespected they feel like so and so wasn't loyal to them they feel like they put in the time and so they should be next in line and then when it doesn't work out yeah. in favor they're all you know, I've been disrespected. No, I have to kill this man. Exactly. Honestly, it's like a bunch of high school girls. That's kind of what you could equate it to. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. Maranzano was fighting back against Masseria and was forming an alliance with Luciano and Costello to take him down. But Luciano and Costello had another plan. They had other plans because they were kind of... As we know from Law's story, instead of, like, getting into the war with them, they kind of pinned them against each other. They kind of played both sides is kind of what happens. High school? Yeah. <laughs> they were choosing not to ally themselves with either side and concocted a plan to end the war once and for all. Luciano and Costello got in contact with the Maranzano family and vowed to turn on Masseria if Maranzano would kill him. And on April 15th, 1931, Luciano lured his boss, Masseria, to a meeting where he was murdered in a very bloody shooting at Coney Island Restaurant, Nuovo, Nuovo Villa Tamaro. That's what the restaurant was called. Just imagine, like, having a casual lunch on Coney Island and all of a sudden some guys just get shot up in the booth. 
kind of crazy. I don't know what I would do. And I'd probably just be like, all right, well, bye. I'm the Peggy Lehman now. The shooters were reportedly Genovese, Albert Anastasia, Joe Adonis, and Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. Bugsy. Good old buddy. After this, Luciano took over Massaria's family with Genovese under him as second in command. So he was like the boss, and then that was the end of it. Then in September 1931, Luciano and Genovese planned the murder of Maranzano. Luciano had heard that Maranzano had placed hits on both him and Genovese, so on September 10th, 1931, when Maranzano called upon Luciano, Genovese, and Costello to attend a meeting at his New York Central Building office, they had him gunned down by murderate fit men. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just love that. What's my motherfucking name? Out of you. <laughs> anyway. The death of Salvatore Maranzano ended what was known as the Castella Maurice War. That big word. That horrible word that I was struggling out so madly with. Yeah. I'm just going to pull up the pronunciations next time. Like, there's this little Italian dude who does the pronunciations, and he's, when he was doing the, uh, the names, he was like, Maranzano. Like, <laughs> You run instead of saying instead of actually saying it, I'll just hit a button and have him to just have me say it. <laughs> that would be hilarious, actually. <laughs> oh, we should get the tire Alfredo to just come sit. In oh my it. god, yes, <laughs> that would be perfect. He he is perfect for that. Luciano's next step was to create the commission, which would serve as the governing body for all organized crime. This replaced the idea of having a top leader or boss of all bosses, like how they did in the olden days, you know, which was previously held by Maranzano at the time of his murder. This committee consisted of the bosses of the five families, Joe Profacci, is that how you say that? I'd be damned if I am. Yes, he's one of the ones. He's one of the other people. Who don't. One of the ones that I got the fatty. <laughs> Tommy Gagliano, Vincent Mangano, Joseph. Oh my God, I'm going to freaking destroy this. Bonanno. Bonanno. It's Bonano. just Bonanno. Bonanno. He's my next guy. Okay. <laughs> and Philip Bonanno. 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 Oh, what a gosh. No, we have not had the best day, guys, in case you couldn't tell. We're a little slap happy. Yeah. Anyway, and Luciano, as well as Al Capone from the Chicago outfit and the Buffalo family. Oh, yes. Yeah. That guy whose cell I saw. I was going to say it was in, but I was not in it. I just saw it. You just saw it. <laughs> you weren't in it. From the Chicago outfit and Buffalo family boss Stefano Magandino. I don't know. Yeah, that's it. Stefano Magandino. <laughs> and I, I just, I'm not great with the Italian names. I'm yeah. enough. Like, give, give me, like, a Russian name over that. I don't know why. I, I, the Italian I struggle with. I don't know. And at times, leaders of smaller families, such as Detroit and Philly, Philadelphia, as well as others, were involved. The purpose of the commission was to oversee all mafia activities in the U.S. and serve to mediate conflicts among families. So that's what they were doing with that whole idea. Yeah. Which, you know, doesn't really go over all that well because they're still killing each other. Well, that's true. 
Luciano is now a leader of his own crime family with Genovese as his underboss, and Costello was appointed as his consigliere or advisor, which we stated before is like a right-hand man. Costello was in charge of the slot machine and bookmaking operations for the Luciano family with an associate named Philip Dandy Phil Castell. <laughs> I love these names so much. He was quickly becoming one of the biggest earners for the family. He placed 21,000 slot machines in bars, restaurants, cafes, drugstores, gas stations, and bus stops throughout New York. So that was like his whole, I guess that was like his big thing, Costello. He was like big into the whole like gambling and. Yeah, uh, they tend to have that much areas. So that was the area. Some of them are doing gambling. Some do, you know, the bootlegging. Some do loan sharking. Some do construction. Yeah. Fraud and whatever. In 1934, Mayor Fiorello LaGuarda, or something, had thousands of Costello's machines confiscated. Was it Lagardi? Is that where they get Lagardi? Yeah, I think it's Lagardi. Is that where they get There's it? no A on the end of it, though. Maybe they just tack it on for the airport. Maybe. I was like, because I was thinking of that, too. Yeah, I was like, thinking of the Lagardi air. Yeah. <laughs> First time you were saying that. I don't know. He had thousands of Costello's machines confiscated, loaded on a barge, and thrown into the river. You know what I found funny to be about this is that, like, back then it was like, he was like, no, 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 this this mayor or whatever was like, no, 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 we can't have that. There are fucking gambling, online gambling machines and, like, those fucking things where people waste money sitting in gas stations and all over the place now. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, no big fucking deal. Yeah. It's such a racket, too. It's like, I personally, okay, I'm not calling anyone out, but I personally, you know, see it. We work at banks. I work on the front end. There are yeah. people who waste their money sitting at these machines all day long. Mm-hmm. It's insane. I mean, there's a reason why it's a legitimate addiction. It is definitely an addiction. After that, he accepted a proposal from Louisiana's governor, Huey Long, to put slot machines all over Louisiana for 10% of the take. Louisiana's pretty gross with casinos. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. I can only imagine. One every 10 feet. And he made his associate, Castell, the overseer of the Louisiana slot machine operation with a member of the New Orleans mafioso, Carlos Little Man Marcello. Little Man. Sorry, buddy. You'd have to work out there, Dan. Get into that. (laughs) Costello brought in millions of dollars in profit to the family from his slot machines and bookmaking was another business he did which he had branched out to Florida and other states as well. Uh, in some articles, they even said he, like, went international with some of his business. But I, I, I mean, can't confirm or deny that, honestly. In 1936, Luciano was convicted of running a prostitution ring and sentenced to 30 to 50 years in state prison. Dang, that's a long time. Not so lucky, Annie. That is a very long time, and yes, that is not lucky at all. While stuck in prison, he attempted to run things within the crime family with the help of Costello and Lansky. But this proved too difficult, and this is when Genovese became acting boss of the Luciano crime family. But then, in 1937, Genovese was indicted for a 1934 murder, so he fled to Italy to escape those charges, as well as any jail time that would concur from those charges. So, 
this kind of leaves some openings there, you know? So now with both of them gone, Costello was made acting boss, with his underboss being his cousin, Willie Moretti. Now, there's this whole big thing that starts that they talk about, which I'm going to is I'm going to talk about next here, mm-hmm. which is the Kefauver, Kefauver hearings. I can't even say this word right. It's such a weird word. Um, from May 1950 to May 1951, so that's like an entire year, the U.S. Senate conducted an expansive investigation into organized crime. This is now known as the Kefauver hearings because the committee was led by Senator Estes father of Tennessee. Okay. They held hearings in 14 major cities around the U.S. More than 600 witnesses testified. Many of these hearings were televised live on TV, with one of those being Frank's hearing. But only his hands were seen on TV. There's even, like, shots of it that I saw online. We could only see his hands. You couldn't see, like, a bunch here or something. That's weird, but okay. I guess they were trying to keep some anonymity, but at the same time, it's like, I think people know who the bosses are. Or do they not? I mean, if you're trying them at court, I'm sure you're using their names. I don't know. (laughs) These hearings were mainly aimed at proving that a Sicilian-Italian organization based on strong family ties controlled organized crime in the U.S. But in fact what they uncovered in their evidence kind of did the opposite of that. They found out that people of all nationalities, ethnicities, and religions operated loosely organized crime groups at the local level. So they really kind of like, but they went in thinking they were going to have this big bust of one group and ultimately just ended up with an, oh shit, there's way more than we thought. thought. Yeah. It's like they were attacking the Italian people. Like it was a them problem, you know what I mean? But in fact, there was a lot of people involved in this, not just Italian-Americans, you know? Costello was the only monster who agreed to testify during the hearings instead of pleading the fifth like everyone else. By doing this, he thought he could sway them into believing he was a legit businessman and had nothing to hide. As it worked out. Of course, that can get a backfire. I, I, in my notes, Larry wrote, surprise, he was wrong. <laughs> this was... So he was dodging questions and straight up refused to answer others and would nervously twist his palms together. And as we know, you can only see his hands on the video. You can't have your little nervous ticks in your tails when you're yeah. trying to lie to the courts, Frankie. Yeah. So, yeah. He eventually ended up walking out also as another Saul. Now, I can't confirm or deny that either, but uh, sounds like he did. Costello was then held in contempt, which is like being disobedient or disrespectful in a court of law, of the Senate and sentenced to 18 months in prison. They were trying to prove that Costello had it in with politician Carmine DeSafio and had been influencing decisions made by his counsel. DeSafio was like, yeah, I met him. Several times, in fact, but that politics were never discussed at all anytime they saw each other. Now, to the contrary, when I was doing my research, I did find out or see that Costello did have a lot of 
political friends, quote unquote. So maybe, I mean, of course, maybe he did have influence in this. I, I can't confirm or deny wasn't there, but it seems like he sort of did because, like I said in my research, it did say that he was very um, much in with uh, politicians. So <laughs> you know that they. The only thing going through my mind right now is then. <laughs> Why the fuck you lie? Fuck you always lie. I mean, of course, this politician guy is gonna say he didn't. Well, yeah, I discussed these things today. Bill Clinton having no reality with that woman. He doesn't want to get in trouble. And also, Willie Moretti, as we know, was the underboss for Costello at this time when everyone else was well. One of them fled to Italy, the other one sitting in jail. He also testified and revealed some details that made other mobsters upset. So he was assassinated in 1951. Big shocker. Hmm. Not an assassination. (laughs) I'm shocked. Anyway. Also in 1952, the government began taking steps to take away Costello's U.S. citizenship that he had earned back in 1925. And he was indicted for tax evasion of $73,417 in income taxes between 1946 and 1949. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of money, especially back then. Like, think about that. Yeah, it's got to be well over a couple hundred grand at this point. Yeah. I could only imagine. $73,000 in the 40s? Come on. He was sentenced to five years in prison and fined $20,000. In 1954, Costello appealed his conviction and was released on $50,000 bail. Between 1952 and 1961, Costello was in and out of half a dozen federal and local prisons and jails. There was, like, many appeals. And they met a lot Well, yeah, I guess. And he was just in and out, in and out, because he was doing appeal after appeal, paying bond after bond. He was in, he was out, he was in, he was out. I don't think he was in there very long at any of these times, but, you know. In 1945, Vito Genovese had returned to the state and was acquitted of all his charges and was ready to resume control of the Luciano family. Costello was not willing to give up his role as head of the I was just going to say, he should be like, no, no, bitch, you ran away. You ran away and hid. You don't get to just come back. You get to just come back when you ran away and hid. No, sir. Yeah, he was not. He was like, no, no way is that happening. He was not willing to give it up. This created a feud that lasted over 10 years. Until in 1956... Adonis, a powerful ally of Costello's, chose to be deported back to Italy over serving a long prison sentence. This left Costello weakened, but Genovese needed to neutralize one other powerful Costello ally, which was Anastasia. Oh, I know where this is going. We all know where this is going. Like, I mean, we listen to last week. Anastasia had taken over the Mangano crime family after the disappearance of its boss, Vincent Mangano, along with the murder of his brother, Philip Mangano. In early 1957, Genovese decided to make his move on Costello. So on May 2nd, 1957, as Costello was heading for an elevator at the Majesty, an apartment building in New York City, Vincent the Chin Giganti shot at Costello from a passing car on the orders of Genovese. 
he narrowly escaped assassination by turning his head at the last second, so the bullet only grazed his head. That's luck. Now, I wasn't lucky. I wasn't there, but they say that this dumbass, Vincent the Chin, shouted, this is for you, Frank, and that's why he turned. Dumbass. You're not supposed to tell people you're coming up on them. Why would you do that? Wait, why would you? Hey, I'm rolling up on ya. Here I go. It's like announcing your... Are you ready? No, no it's stirring. Yeah. I feel... Oh my gosh. A doorman identified... Giganti as the gunman, but in 1958, Costello testified that he was unable to recognize who shot at him, and Giganti was acquitted of attempted murder. And we know all this and talked about it last week. Right. After the assassination attempt, Costello turned control of the Luciano family back over to Genovese in return for keeping his New Orleans slot machines and Florida gambling ring. So now, he is essentially retired from the mob. But he is still highly regarded and did maintain some power and influence throughout his final years. They even continued to call him the Prime Minister of the Underworld. Bosses and associates like Gambino and Lucis would pay him visits at his penthouse seeking his advice on mafia-related matters. He also kept in touch with Charles Luciano and Meyer Lansky. Although he was still offering up advice to his associates... His bank account had suffered from his mass amounts of legal troubles, so he had to ask for loans from his close friends. Then, so it kind of didn't work out for him in the end. There did it. It is said he spent his retirement gardening and landscaping, and even displayed some of his flowers at local horticultural shows. Isn't that uh, so cute? <laughs> <laughs> Hobster turned little old grandpa gardener. Yeah, exactly. On February 20th, 1961, the Supreme Court upheld the lower court's orders to take away his U.S. citizenship. But then on February 17th, 1964, the same court put forth a deportation order for Costello on a legal, a legal technicality. Okay. Yet, in February of 1973, he was still living in his Manhattan home. When he suffered a heart attack. So this shit must take a long time. Like, I don't know. I, I don't I never would have been in a situation like that if I was born in the U.S. But it seemed like it because literally this is like 1961 to 1964 to 1973. This shit must just take a long ass time. Yeah. I, 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 just, I don't. I mean, I don't know what the process is nowadays, but I'm sure there's evidence gathering. You can't just willy-nilly kick somebody out of a whole country, so... Yeah, you have to probably have a lot of... Uh, and for them to be finding mentalities to get him on, they must have been looking really hard. Yeah, some time. So he suffered a massive heart attack in his Manhattan home and was rushed to the hospital where he died on February 18th at the age of 82. So far, we're two for two. I you know. know. Two guys who literally didn't end up getting murdered, who didn't succumb to the usual mob death. Yeah, he was one of very few mob bosses to live a long life and die of old age. That's like a very rare thing. You know, I haven't gotten that far with Bonanno yet, Mr. Banana Man. Banana Man. <laughs> Banana Lama. <laughs> oh, well, see, maybe he makes it too. 
I guess we shall see. Costello's memorial service was attended by 50 relatives, friends, and law enforcement agents. His remains are in a private mausoleum in St. Michael's Cemetery in East Elmhurst, Queens. And in 1974, even after all this shit is done and over with, an enemy of Costello's, Carmine Gennady, was released from prison, and he allegedly ordered the bombing of the doors to Costello's mausoleum. It's like, you're going to be really pissed at this motherfucker. He's dead already. How petty can you be? <laughs> like, really? If that doesn't say some shit about how childish these men are, as we were just saying before. That's a little ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, there's people I don't like uh, that have died that I'm not just going to, like, roll up on their grave and start blowing shit up. I thought it was an interesting fact. I was like, okay. <laughs> but, yeah. He lived to be an old man. I'm really curious about our next two to see if they see what happens. Yeah, it should be interesting. Oh, I'm rooting for you, banana. <laughs> <laughs> I think mine's a profaci, profaci, yeah, profaci. Yeah, you got profaci. I got banana. I almost caught him, but I can't. <laughs> I'm gonna get stuck, and I'm gonna call him banana. Not banana. <laughs> that that's my fault okay well it is getting interesting yeah we're finding all sorts of things out about this world of some monsters <laughs> the water and i don't crazy but you know if it seems too good to be true it is usually it is <laughs> especially when you're involved in the mob and you're, you know, you know enough people slowing up. It's like you're going to eventually end up in jail or dead. We got to stop saying that though, because the last two were like they actually did yeah, die. This was shocking. They died, but, but of natural causes. So it's like you know, don't, they're the exception, not the rule. Exactly. I think you can go get involved with the mob, and everything's going to be fine. Well, also, like he died penniless, basically. So I mean, yeah, that's not a good look, especially. When it's at one point he was like a really big honcho, you know, millionaires, yeah. And, and uh, what's his name, Gambino? He was a millionaire too. Mm -hmm. Well, anyway, uh, if you guys want to find us on our socials, the link is in the show notes. If you'd like to send us an email, it's too good to be true pod at out dot com. If you have any nickname suggestions for us, please let us know. And thanks for listening. Bye bye. So anyway, let me tell you the story of Skidmark. <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready for this. So you know how I used to have my shoes under the bed, right? Yeah. And then she wouldn't stop messing with them and playing with them and batting them around. And it was really irritating. And so I took that extra box and I just put them in the box. 
Then she started messing with the box. She is pulling the tape off. She's chewing the cardboard. She's scratching at it. She's digging. I was like, I'm going to get, you know, an under the bed shoe storage, like actual thing. Right. But in the meantime, while I just have this cardboard box, I'll just put a sheet, an extra sheet that I have over the box so that she can't get to it. She won't be tempted if she can't get to it at all. So I put it on there, and she yanked it back up. So then I was going to go just slide into the bed real quick and, like, tuck it up under the box so that she couldn't pull it back. Right. And that's when I noticed two little brown streaks on the sheet. And I'm like, did I put a pair of shoes on top of the sheet and it's a mud? I'm like, no, definitely didn't do that. Is it dirt from, like, what is that from? I pull it off. It's shit. It's two streaks of shit. It's not, she didn't poop on the box. Like, she didn't squat and poop on the box in defiance. She pooped in her litter box. But then she got out and dragged her little kundu ass across this sheet, not once, but twice, and left little tiny skid marks on this sheet. It was disgusting. And, like... I ended up just throwing the sheet out. I just threw it away because, like, it was already an old sheet anyway. And I'm like, the only reason I was holding on to it was after I move, I could use it on a guest bed for guests. But I'm like, I can't give them the shit stained sheet. I don't think I'm going to be able to get this out, even with bleach. And so I just ended up having to throw it out. And then I just decided to take the whole box situation and just get rid of it because I didn't even wear most of those shoes anyway. She had chewed and clawed some of them so severely that they just, they didn't look good to wear. So I was just going to throw them out anyway and then get rid of the box. I ended up keeping like maybe two pairs of shoes out of the box and they're just all under my dresser now. But when I went to open the box, not only had she skid marked across the sheet, at some point, she managed to throw up inside the box without opening the box or getting any on the outside of the box. There was throw up on some of the pairs of shoes in the box. I don't, like, is she an actual teenage human in a cat suit? Because what cat thinks to do that like i've had cats katie has even done it in the past one time poop somewhere because they are mad well actually katie katie is a serial pooper when she's upset <laughs> at a time that she shit on the floor while i was visiting my friends in louisiana she kept pooping on the floor while i was gone and my mom had to keep cleaning it up and she kept telling me like keep shitting on the floor i'm like she's mad because i'm not there and the one day she shit on the floor and my mom sent me a picture of it. And I was like, oh, it's a tea for Tammy. And that's that's normal. Everybody, I think, has experienced a cat who shits or pisses somewhere. They're not supposed to because they're upset. I have never seen one deliberately leave skid marks somewhere. She's like, you know what I'm Wipe my ass. Like, I was picturing with her and just... Try to have a little ass across the shoe, and then doing it a second time. She came back for us for a second. And go. Do you remember how I was telling you that no matter how much I cleaned the box, I kept smelling shit, and I didn't know why. 
me, what the fuck? Like, uh, I was, I can't, you can't do it. I'll tell you what, she needs to go to boarding school and learn how to be good because she does not know. 